It was before dawn on the morning of July 30, 1864. Most Confederate troops outside of Petersburg, Virginia, were fast asleep. On the other side of the siege lines, however, Henry Pleasance was not only wide awake, but concerned. A lieutenant colonel from a mining district in Pennsylvania, he'd crawled hundreds of feet into a tunnel that he'd helped to dig and then lit a fuse. The flame would travel far under enemy lines and detonate four tons of gunpowder packed into 320 kegs. That was the plan, anyway. Colonel Pleasance checked his watch. Fifteen minutes gone and still only silence. He rounded up two volunteers to go see what was wrong. Lanterns in hand, they crept into the tunnel and discovered that the fuse had gone out. Upon relighting it, they made a dash for the tunnel's entrance. Then, at exactly 4.44 a.m., it happened. The ground heaved and lifted, and according to some Michigan soldiers, a monstrous tongue of flame shot fully 200 feet in the air, followed by a vast column of white smoke. The rising earth made a fountain that mingled men and guns, timbers and planks, and every other kind of debris. 278 Confederates, mostly from South Carolina and Virginia, died instantly and a giant crater was opened up in the ground where moments earlier they had been sleeping. Pleasance put his watch back in his pocket and breathed a huge sigh of relief. I'm Brendan Wolf, editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we'll look at one of the strangest and most heartbreaking of all Civil War battles, the Battle of the Crater. The two armies had been camped on the outskirts of Petersburg for about six weeks. If the city fell, then likely so too would the nearby Confederate capital at Richmond. The stakes were high then, and the battles leading up to this standoff, at the Wilderness, at Spotsylvania Courthouse, and at Cold Harbor, had been bloody beyond comprehension. In its fourth summer now, the whole war was beginning to feel like that. Nobody wanted a long siege, not least the editors of the Richmond Examiner. On June 21st, they wrote an article encouraging the Union General, Ulysses S. Grant, to plunge with his whole force into the crater of the volcano and make an end to it. Let not the campaign linger. That was more than a month before Colonel Pleasance and his boss, General Grant, did exactly that. One might comment on such an amazing moment of accidental prescience, but this too is worth noting. Be careful what you wish for. The digging took about a month. In the meantime, the general set about making a battle plan. Ambrose Burnside suggested that after the explosion, he should send in his freshest men, a division of black troops. His superiors decided, no, that wouldn't work. They said the black troops were untested, which they were. But there was another reason. Grant worried that if there were a massacre and the black troops went in first, it might look bad. Burnside wasn't impressed with this reasoning, but he complied. His remaining commanders drew straws to see whose men would go first. The short straw went to James H. Ledley. The New York Railroad engineer had seen his share of fighting, but some folks whispered that he had a drinking problem. On the morning of the battle, he lined his men up and readied for the Big Bang. But when it came, 
General Ledley, or rather his men, made a huge mistake. The crater that had opened up was 170 feet long, 60 feet across, and 30 feet deep. Rather than march around it, Ledley's men marched into it. There they discovered that the earth had fallen back into the crater and become a mash. It trapped the struggling Union soldiers inside. So where was General Ledley when he might have been directing his men around the giant hole or helping them get out of it? Where was he as his men became fish in the proverbial barrel? He was well behind the lines, snug inside a bunker and sipping a bottle of rum. The day was a scorcher, and a mist of humidity and smoke hung over the hole. Inside, one New York soldier tripped over the naked bodies of those South Carolina boys originally killed by the explosion. He later wrote that he was on his way to what appeared to be a long line of Union soldiers waiting for the command to move forward. Then, to his horror, he realized they were all dead. General Burnside sent in his black troops. They'd never seen combat before and plunged into the fight, crying, Remember Fort Pillow. That was a reference to a battle in Tennessee in which black troops had been murdered by their Confederate captors. Their cheer may have inspired more than they'd intended. Virginia men arrived to reinforce the Confederate line. When they saw black soldiers in the crater, they took it as an ugly provocation. One officer yelled, Boys, you have hot work ahead. They are Negroes and show no quarter. Black troops who tried to surrender were not always spared, and those who were captured were sometimes murdered. One Confederate officer, whose cousin had been blown up in the initial explosion, wrote a letter to his sister. He said that yes, it might seem cruel to murder the black soldiers in cold blood, but it was good for morale. I have always said that I wish the enemy would bring some Negroes against this army, he wrote. I am convinced in Saturday's fight that it has a splendid effect on our men. The general in charge of the Virginia troops was William Little Billy Mahone. He was a railroad tycoon from Southampton County, and he really was little. One historian describes him as small and lean as a starvation year. Another is short in stature, spare almost to emaciation, with a long beard and keen, restless eyes. After the war, he would serve in the U.S. Senate and lead a short-lived political party that brought together poor whites and African Americans. To be clear, though, little Billy wasn't all that progressive about race relations. More like pragmatic. And on this hot, bloody, and victorious day, he looked around and what he saw was chaos and poor discipline. One of Mahone's soldiers described the scene in a letter to his brother. We captured 250 Negroes, all of whom were wounded in some way, bayoneted, knocked on the head by the butts of muskets. All would have been killed had it not been for General Mahone, who would beg our men to spare them. One fellow in our brigade killed several. The general told him, for God's sake, stop. Well, general, let me kill one more. He then deliberately took out his pocket knife and cut one's throat. It was a particularly savage end to a particularly savage day. Nowadays, people argue over whether the Civil War was caused by slavery. And many point out that soldiers on both sides fought for causes other than emancipation, which is true. 
But at least one historian has argued that Billy Mahone's Virginians saw black soldiers inside the crater and treated them like they would have slaves in revolt. They were not in their proper place, and they would be dealt with accordingly. Meanwhile, over on the losing side of the battle, fingers pointed in pretty much every direction. One general blamed the black troops. Burnside blamed his superiors for not letting him put the black troops in sooner. Pretty much everyone else blamed Birdside. Oh, and Ledley, too. They both were given leave with no orders to return. The only person to come out looking smart was Henry Pleasance, the miner. His idea for a long tunnel had been ridiculed by the Army's professional engineers, who called it claptrap and nonsense. He showed them, and for his trouble won a nice promotion. After the war, Pleasance continued his mining, but he died suddenly in 1880, at the age of 47. The paper said only that he'd suffered from a mental aberration. As for his mine, it had produced the largest explosion in the Western Hemisphere up to that point, and yet by day's end, it had accomplished very little. In July 1864, a lot of folks might have used those terms to describe the entire war. Someone who's thought a lot about the battle, its awful chaos and its reverberations over the years in terms of both race and reunion, is Emanuel Dabney, curator at the Petersburg National Battlefield Park in Petersburg, Virginia. He's from the area himself, and his roots there go back hundreds of years. Emanuel took me out to the battlefield recently where we stood on the edge of the crater, still a giant hole in the ground, now blanketed in grass and protected by a fence. In 1937, it was a site for a reenactment of the battle. They actually used TNT to re-explode the crater, um, presumably with sand uh, in, the, in the area, so they would get the effect of the explosion without actually like blowing up a larger hole in, right, so like in the landscape. sand would come up, <laughs> yes. and it would look like a huge explosion. Yes. Uh, it was a big deal. 50,000 people showed up for it. Uh, the U.S. Marines would portray the white Union soldiers. The VMI cadets portrayed the Confederate soldiers. There was no portrayal of United States colored troops. There's no massive effort by U.S. colored troops to have like a veterans reunion here. Black veterans not coming to a reunion in 1937 might not be surprising. It's almost like there's, there's ni- neither side can you really call home, both because of the actions on that date, but also the history that came after. Right, right. So um, in some ways, it seems like they are like not wanted, like exclusively not uh, wanted. They complicate the post-war narrative. Right. Yes, reunification can't really work when you're discriminating against part of what makes the Union the Union in the aftermath of the Civil War. And that goes sort of both ways. You know, all of us were brave and all of us were glorious. And, you know, there's no real point to why anyone was fighting the war. They just fought the war. Uh, And, of course, as the southern states are redeemed, as white southerners would see it, uh, their racial biases play out legally. Black 
black veterans are also facing their own crises of being poor or impoverished for those who have been wounded or become sick. They're battling with the pension office to get their uh, pensions. And it's another round of surviving. Yes, yes. So uh, they don't have time to sort of, or resources, financial resources. take a lot of money to build monuments. And if you are sharecropping, you suddenly don't really have money to go and erect granite and marble across the battlefields. And that is going to color how people ultimately are going to imagine the Civil War as, you know, the white north and the white south fighting one another uh, and, you know, ignoring the you know, nearly 200,000 black soldiers and almost 20,000 black naval men who served during uh, the Civil War in the, in the Union Army. So how do visitors today, I mean, you, you, so you are right in front of us complicating that narrative, um, talking about not just chaos on the battlefield, but racial chaos. How do visitors receive those that kind of complication today? Are, are people really open to it? Are people defensive about it? Do they want to argue the facts? That all of those things, <laughs> all of those things happen. But again, when we start looking at these individual stories, people, no matter who they are and where they are at, even in the midst of a large battle, can only sort of see what's happening right around them. We owe it to try to find as many stories as possible to get a real sense of how fascinating and unique is something, how commonplace and ordinary is something else. We don't owe Robert E. Lee's account any more weight than we do of Peter Churchwell's account of, of what happened to him here during the battle, and more importantly for him, as a captured colored soldier, what happened to him after the battle. Uh, they all bring different perspectives, and that they all are different people, so they cannot experience the Civil War in the same way. There are accounts of white officers who led U.S. colored troops into this chaos, starting to realize that white officers associated with black troops are not going to make it. So they start calling out that they're with other units that are white regiments in an effort to preserve their own lives. In a memoir written after the, after the war, of course, by a guy who served in the 14th New York Heavy Artillery, George Kilmer, he talks about... Uh, an unknown number of white Union troops turning against black Union troops, as was reported to him in an effort to save white men's lives. Were some of these people just thinking, let's end the battle? And so if we just turn on these black Union troops, we can just stop this, we'll stop killing Union uh, white men, we'll stop, we'll stop, in their case, killing white Confederate soldiers, and the battle will just end. Feel like a big metaphor? Yeah, it's sort of <laughs> like, what does you know, to save white men's lives mean. There's certainly enough racial chaos to go around here on, on the battlefield, um, leaving the black troops often to sort of fend for themselves uh, in a way that we can't even fully encapsulate because we don't, you know, have a lot of information about those people from their own voices in such a descriptive way.
To read more about the Battle of the Crater, William Mahone, and the United States Colored Troops, go to encyclopediavirginia.org. Not Even Past is a member of the Teej.fm podcast network. Find out more at teej.fm. This podcast is produced by Miranda Bennett.